It's a wonderful story that we've got in uh, Daniel chapter 6, the most famous event in Daniel's life. And probably if you ask people, well, what's the top five Bible stories? Uh, I reckon it would be in most people's top five um, for us. Let me pray as we uh, begin to look at this together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this whole series in the book of Daniel. Thank you for Robin, who's taught it to us. And uh, Lord God, we thank you for all that we've been learning about who you are, about your character, about your power. And Lord God, we pray that as we come to this uh, passage this evening, you would speak to us uh, according to your word, that you would teach us more of yourself and help us to see more of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's uh, plots and there's enemies and there's great kings and pits full of lions and tension building and certain death and then miraculous salvation. What we're going to do tonight is just track through the story pretty simply. Uh, The outline of that is just on the back of your handout if you've got that. And then at the end, we're going to just draw together the big conclusions of uh, the first half of this book and chapter six. This is the flow of the story. Uh, It's death trap, death inescapable, death escaped, and the God who delivers from death. So here's the scene. Daniel's in his 80s by the time chapter six begins. He's an old man. He's been in exile in Babylon for all of his adult life. And just imagine that for a moment, you're taken forcibly from your home, Uh, many of your friends and your relatives and your countrymen will have been killed and a few would have been preserved and taken into exile. And you spend your whole life in a foreign land unable to return. In the early part of the exile during King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, a letter came to to, to Babylon, to the exiles, from the prophet Jeremiah. And you can find it recorded in Jeremiah 29. I encourage you to look at that later on. Now in that letter, God spoke to them and he told them that they would not return for 70 years. And that while they were in exile, they weren't to fight a kind of resistance campaign, nor were they to withdraw into some kind of ghetto existence in the city, and neither were they to compromise and become assimilated to the worldly culture of Babylon. Don't fight, don't withdraw, and don't compromise. Now instead, here's what God said to do, Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, verse 7. God said, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's a pretty remarkable thing to say. Hard to do, but this is what Daniel has been doing. He's been doing it all of his life. He's been faithfully serving the Lord by serving the kings of Babylon that have come and gone. And they have come and gone. First of all, he served Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of his counsellors, and then he was a provincial ruler. And Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest of the Babylonian kings. He's the one who had conquered Israel. He decimated it, and he'd captured the treasures of the temple and brought them back to Babylon. But Daniel, in time, saw God humble him, humble this great king, and he saw Nebuchadnezzar come to worship the Lord as the one true God and ruler of all the earth. 
But then Nebuchadnezzar died. And in the course of time, he was succeeded by King Belshazzar, and we saw him last week. And Daniel goes from his prospering career under Nebuchadnezzar to being sidelined, to being forgotten about. But we heard that Belshazzar was proud and arrogant. He took those temple items and he used them in a drunken feast to entertain his friends. And from that moment on, the writing was on the wall for him. He ends up terrified of God's judgment and he promotes Daniel again in what seems to be a kind of last act of trying to appease God's wrath. But Belshazzar will not humble himself and bow the knee in worship. And that night, God brings him down from his throne and he gives his kingdom to the Medes and the Persians. And if you can remember all the way back to chapter 2, that's exactly what God had predicted would happen. And so we get to the end of chapter 5. This is where we left things last week. Chapter 5, verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put round his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So here's where we are. We know from this account and from other sources as well that corroborate it that the year is 539 BC, that Cyrus the Great is the the ruler of the great Medo-Persian Empire, and King Darius, who's mentioned there in chapter 5, he's he's a kind of sub-regent. As the text says there, he's received the newly conquered kingdom of Babylon, which is just part of the Persian Empire to rule over. Now alongside all of that, Daniel knows more about God's plan. He knows that the 70 years of exile are now up and he's still in the middle of it all. That's the scene. That's where we are as we enter chapter 6 and this great story. So here we go, verse 1 to 9, death trap. Remarkably, Daniel keeps his place in the new regime. Verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. As we've seen throughout the whole of this book, Daniel's integrity and his wisdom mark him out. The king sees his qualities and he seeks him to sort of promote him to a kind of vice regent. He's, He's on prime minister level over everyone else. But that, of course, gets in the way of the plans of wicked men. Like in most courts, jealousy abounds in the court of Babylon and a collective plot to stop Daniel's rise begins to form. But the plotters, they have a problem. It's in verse 4. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. 
Daniel was faithful in all things. He wasn't corrupt. There were no levers to press against him, no deviance, no perversion, no dodgy dealings. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful that if, if we were ever to be targeted in this way, that there'd be no dirt to dig up? Wouldn't it be wonderful if our work colleagues and our, or our fellow students um, would conclude this of us? There's nothing on them. But these guys, they're convinced to bring Daniel down, and they spot what they see is the weakness in Daniel's armour. Verse 5. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now this, of course, just speaks to the quality of Daniel's public faith. They know who he worships. They know how he worships. They know he is obedient to God's word as his highest authority. And how do they know all this? Well, it must be because he's been living this way in front of them. He's not hidden his faith away. He's not kept it to himself. He's not been private about it. He's not assimilated to their culture. He's not bowed down to the culture's idols. Consistently so, over many years, they know what they've seen of him. And they know that if it comes to a choice, that he will obey God before men. And in their eyes, that's the weakness, and so they set a trap. And it's a clever one, verse 6 and verse 7. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the councillors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. That's very flattering and appealing to the king. You know, it honours him with this kind of godlike status. But notice it's also pitched as the unanimous opinion of the civil service. You know, they pitch it as we've all agreed. Um, But we know, don't we, that one of them hasn't agreed because Daniel hasn't even got a clue that it's happening. But it's all about selling the idea to Darius, isn't it? And at that point, we can't quite see how Daniel could be caught by that. We begin to fear, don't we, because the punishment for disobedience is just so severe the offender shall be cast into the den of lions. Now Darius, the king, he falls for this and he signs the decree and the trap is set and the curtains come down on the stage. End of scene one. Scene two, verse 10 to 18. Death inescapable. Now, you might think, well... Look, actually, this trap is not that hard to escape, is it? I mean, all Daniel has to do is just not pray. I mean, it it didn't say he had to pray to Darius, just that he couldn't pray to anyone else. So, you know, just keep quiet for 30 days and let it all blow over and, and things will be back to normal, we might think. But when Daniel finds out about this trap, 
He does the opposite. Scene two begins in Daniel's house in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so when he found out this was going on, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel by making petition and plea before his gods. What do we notice? Well, there's no panic here. There's no sense of fear. And nor is it rebellion. It's not that he's sort of flaunting. He's acting in defiance of the king's orders. We're told that he simply just does what he's always done. He goes through his normal pattern and he would... Uh, go to the open windows of his house that faced Jerusalem and he'd pray three times a day, just as he always had. If we turn to chapter 9, we find out the content of his prayers. He's, He's praying prayers of repentance on behalf of his people and himself that they might return from exile. And that's so important to him that he's not going to change that for anyone. Of course, his enemies, they know that he does this each day, and that's why they have set it up like this. That's why they, how they're going to catch him. But Daniel doesn't care. He's not about to curtail his devotion to his God for anyone, not even his boss, not even the most powerful ruler in the land. And of course, I think probably alongside that, Daniel knows that trouble's coming. He's no fool He knows that if they don't get in this way, they'll just try another. So he realises that the way out for him is not merely to kind of avoid causing trouble, just sort of keep your head down. No, the way out is increased faith in the God that he worships. He knows that he's absolutely dependent on God for help. And so he makes his pleas and his petitions and his thanks unshamedly. But we've got a question now. Will God answer his prayers? And to begin with, it seems not. The conspirators, they present their evidence to the king, and they do it in a cunning way. They know that Daniel's a favourite, and so they repeat the new law first, and then they get the king to reaffirm his commitment to it before they sell Daniel down the Euphrates. Verse 13. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And with that, the the trap closes. Now Darius, he tries to find a way out. He wants to deliver Daniel from this horrific fate, but the conspirators are insistent. Look, the law is watertight. Daniel must be thrown to the den of lions. And that's what happens. Daniel's fate is sealed. Verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep 
Fred from him. Darius is distraught, isn't he? He he utters this kind of hopeful prayer of, of sorts to Daniel's God, but he knows that there's no chance, really. Death is inescapable. And he spends the night unable to eat or to sleep or to think about anything else. And it's terrible, isn't it? If it were a film, we'd, we'd end up in, in the scene, in, in, down in the pit with the half-light, and 80-year-old Daniel thrown to the floor and a deep growl coming from the shadows, little yellow eyes peering at us and, and the light above slowly disappearing as the stone rolls over the entrance and we're plunged into darkness. And it's a darkness that we know ends in certain death. But it's not the end of the story. Verse 19, death is escaped. Dawn breaks into the king's bedchamber. And the king, he sees the light through his window, he puts on his clothes and he rushes down to the lion's den. Verse 20. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now this is something interesting, isn't it? Just look at that verse again, verse 20, because Darius has changed See, as he left Daniel the night before, he said, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. It was a kind of, it was almost a a prayer, almost a sort of hopeful comment. But now listen. O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? So you notice that? It's it's not just the God Daniel serves anymore. It's the living God. And that's a Jewish phrase. That's a phrase taken from God's word. And of course it means that God is not like the gods of the nations. He's not like the idols of wood and stone who do not live and cannot save. And so could it be that something has happened in the heart of Darius over his sleepless night? that he might, in fact, be coming to a knowledge of the true God, a God who can save people from death. You think about it, he has kind of shown us an act of faith, hasn't he? He's calling out and speaking to a guy who has been in a pit full of lions overnight. That takes faith to do that, doesn't it? Death was inescapable in that position, surely, and yet Darius, he's at least got the faith to call out and ask if God has intervened to deliver Daniel. can imagine what it would be like Darius calling out and there's a sort of a moment of silence and you're straining to hear if there's a response and then this voice speaks from the pit then Daniel said to the king O king live forever my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you O king I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. 
So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. It's such a relief. And if there were some that thought, well, maybe there's some trickery in play, like someone's kind of spiked the lion's food the night before, or perhaps that, you know, they just had something to eat and they weren't really hungry. Well, there's immediate evidence that that's not the case. Verse 24, the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. It's pretty ugly to our modern ears, but that's just what ancient kings did. But for our part, the author wants us to dwell on the deliverance of God's servant. See, Daniel may have been guilty of breaking this law, but he's not broken God's law. Nor has he done anything to harm the king. And his his innocence is just obvious to everyone watching on as he rises from his tomb. Daniel is saved by faith, verse 23, because he trusted in his God. He's trusted in the living God, in the God who delivers from death, and therefore he lives. What a story. Our chapter closes with another decree. And it's similar to the one that Nebuchadnezzar gave earlier on in the book, a few chapters before, It's a declaration of the gospel to the nations. Now we hear the decree, we're going to hear that it's the truth that we need to learn about God. It's, It's the theology of the passage. It's the truth that Darius came to believe through the faithful witness of Daniel and and seeing this wonderful uh, event. And for us as exiles who live on this earth, until we're brought home by our God, it's the truth that we need to know. And we might summarise it like this, in two things, that God rules and that God rescues. So first then, that God rules. Now this is the dominant line of the book, if you've been here over the last five weeks, you'll have picked this up again and again. Listen to Darius in verse 26. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. Now, when Daniel spoke from the pit to Darius, he used the sort of honorific title. He said, O king, live forever. But Darius now knows that that's not right. That there's only one king over the nations of the earth. And that only he is the living God. He doesn't die. There's no change of regime with him. His kingdom, which is the kingdom over all the others, will never come to an end. Darius, just as Nebuchadnezzar did, he humbles himself before God and confesses God's authority over him. He's come to believe that God rules 
and that we mere humans must tremble and fear before him. Now as believers in the 21st century, this is a wonderful truth for us. Because it doesn't look like God rules. It didn't look like it in Babylon. It doesn't look like it here in Scotland. And it doesn't look like it anywhere on earth where God's people seem under threat. But where earthly kingdoms rise and fall and rulers come to power and then perish, the living God always rules. Tremble and fear before him. God rules. And then second, God rescues. Verse 27. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This is the new theology for this part of the book, for chapter 6, that Darius has learned that this God delivers people from death. See, Darius, he was the most powerful man in Babylon. But when it came to it, he had no power to save from death. So he fought all day long to save Daniel, but he couldn't do anything about it. But now he's learned that God can do that, and that he does. And that thought, this thought that God is the one who delivers in this way, who rescues, well, that leads us to other thoughts too, doesn't it? As we've gone through the story, I'm sure you've picked up, there's several things that seem very familiar There's a faithful servant with enemies plotting his downfall. There's a lonely prayer before an arrest. There's a weak ruler who tries to get the death sentence removed, but who in the end capitulates to the conspirators. They said, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. And so the ruler sentences him to an agonising death we saw a stone rolled over the tomb. We saw a rushing to the tomb at dawn. We saw a miraculous and glorious rising. And we even see a gospel message proclaimed to the nations. So the parallels, they're really quite amazing, aren't they? It's a clear foreshadowing of the trial and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus But of course, it's not exactly the same, is it? Primarily because Daniel doesn't die. He gets close to death. He's as good as dead. But he's not actually dead. And so it's a foreshadowing. It's a a pattern. It's an anticipation. But it's not the same. For wonderful though it is, it, it only saves Daniel for a short time. Daniel's old, and he will die again. He's a sinner like the rest of us, and death's what he deserves, as we all do. So great and marvellous that this event is, it it can't be the answer. It teaches us what Darius has just, just taught us, that God is the living God who can deliver from death, 
But this event, it, it doesn't actually defeat death. It doesn't deliver all of us from death. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he takes the sin of his people onto himself and in his death atones for them, bearing the wrath of the Father in our place. He truly dies a brutal death upon a Roman cross. He's truly buried in a tomb. And then at dawn on the third day, he truly rises to new life. And this is the truth that Daniel 6 foreshadows, but it's a wonderful truth for us today that those who trust in God, those who have faith like Daniel's faith, will follow Jesus. We will lie down in death. The tomb will close over us, but death will not hold us. There will be a dawn where we will be raised to new life where we will be raised to return from exile into the new Jerusalem to find a place among the people of God. The last words of this book in Daniel chapter 12, God speaks to his servant Daniel again just before his death. And this is what he says to him. He says, Go your way till the end, and you shall rest that is, in death, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Those who trust in Jesus Christ shall die, but shall rise and find their place in his kingdom. Let's pray. We'll just use the the words at the end of Daniel chapter 6 to pray. Lord God, you are the living God, enduring forever. Your kingdom shall never be destroyed, and your dominion shall be to the end. You deliver and rescue. You work signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. You who have saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Amen.